Compassion is understanding what may be going on in their life that may be affecting their performance. Mm -hmm. Compassion is knowing when to cut someone a break rather than demand more hours, you demand less. Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning in to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Hey, I want to put a plug out really early on this because I'm always forgetting. If you like the content that I've been giving, then make sure that you hit follow so that whatever you're listening to this podcast on, hit follow because every week we come out with a new podcast and I really want to make sure that you're part of the conversation. Additionally, if you like, go to my website. It is www.rllessons.com and leave me a note. Say something about the podcast and let me know if you've got a question or you want a guest to be on. We welcome that opportunity because it's all about the conversation that is going to give you the information, the tools, and the mindset so that you can close the gap, which means getting from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Achieving those goals and success is not defined so much as what it looks like, but it's about making small steps every day consistently over time. That's how you achieve it. My guests today, as well as always, are people who are experts in their field, and they offer time-proven and really down-to-earth, simple ways in which you can achieve your goals and close the gap. And with that, let me tell you about today. It is a returning guest. I am so happy to have my friend Colin B. Ellis on the line. We are going to have some fun today. Well, you know what? We are now entering year three of what are we going to do with work? Are we going to be face-to-face? Are we going to continue to be virtual? We really think, Colin and I really think that this life of going back to normal, which meant that we would be doing what we did before COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown probably isn't going to return. The great resignation where employees are now taking the reins and saying, wait a minute, I need more flexibility in my life. I can do the work. I don't need you looking over my shoulder, Mr. and Mrs. Boss. What I need is the ability to be flexible and to do it my way. I will deliver the results if you're clear on what those results are. And that means I can do my work anywhere in the world. So this idea of hybrid workspaces and managers, leaders, and executives starting to plan for hybrid work has to be at the top of your list right now. With that, his newest book should be out now. It's called The Hybrid Handbook, How to Set Yourself Up for the Future of Work. Colin is an award-winning international speaker, an Amazon number one bestseller author, hey, and renowned culture change and project management expert who works with organizations around the world to help them transform the way they get things done. He is able to draw on 30 years of public and private 
sector leadership experience in the UK, New Zealand, and now Australia. Colin shares his knowledge of workplace culture and project management through his books. He's also the creator of the Culture Makes Community, a virtual community that connects people and cultural ideas from around the world and hosts culture makers and culture and coffee podcasts. Talk about somebody who's busy. I don't <laughs> I thought I was busy. I don't know anybody more busy than you. He's originally from <laughs> Liverpool, like I said before, and he now lives with his family in Melbourne, Australia. And with that, hey, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Denise. I'm pretty, it seems so weird when we're recording this, you're freezing and I am roasting. Like it's 8 a.m. in the morning here and it's already like, I don't know, about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, yeah, hello. It's great <laughs> to be on again. Great to see you. So good. I know. That's the beauty of this thing called hybrid, right? Yeah. You can speak to anyone, anywhere, at any time. And all those barriers that we thought we had, Denise, like, and so many bad managers use technology as an excuse for not having more flexible working. We just disproved that with COVID. It's one of the good news stories to come out of COVID. We proved that technology can work and flexible working is a real thing. Absolutely. And so if you don't mind, let's kind of start Mm. with this idea of talking to how culture is impacted by this whole thing. You know, lots of people are on Teams and Zooms and Google Meets. We're actually not in physical space with people. And there are a lot of issues that managers are struggling with if they have employees in different countries as well as different locations. What are you seeing? Well, yeah, so so culture or the way that we do things around here, then he's pretty much for everybody listening to this podcast, we only know one way of working. You know, if you're an office-based employee, You get up in the morning, you drag yourself out of bed in the morning, you go to an office, you work in that office with other people, you come home. You earn just enough money not to get fired and to afford a holiday. And that's what we did. And then, you know, kind of along came the virus and and it dramatically changed the dynamic of the way that we do things. It dramatically changed the access we had to people where where pre-COVID, I could just walk to your desk and say, hi, Denise, how are you? Even if it's just a casual coffee chat, that got removed and we had to be more deliberate about everything. The organizations that thrived, Denise, at the start of the pandemic were the ones that recognized that really, really early. And they were like, oh, hang on a minute. Everything's changed. If you remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really know. We didn't really know how long we'd be locked down for. We didn't really know how long it would last. But we knew kind of three to six months based on history. We knew three to six months. That was the original projection. And so many organizations were like, we need to redefine the way that we do things. Even before you even think about how we use technology, we need to redefine the way that we do things in order that we can still get the best out of each other because the way that we do things has changed. And so they're the organizations that thrive. The organizations that didn't almost stuck their head in the sand and were like, we'll just wait for this to pass and then everything can get back to normal and it'll be all cool again. It's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, that's never happening. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've done my business, my coaching business since 07. And literally, probably 80% of the people that I coach and interact with, I never saw anyway. I was always kind of this hybrid phone, Zoom, or actually it was Skype. And then, you know, kind of Google Meet and then Zoom came about on uh, in the scenes and whatnot. And there are some companies that actually were pre-COVID. They had people in multiple countries. 
And so the opportunity, I mean, they may have met once a year or twice a year at a big meeting, but really they did more work using technology. I find the companies that are struggling, the ones that you said, oh, we'll get back to it, were the ones who had the opportunity before to use technology in a different way. And for whatever reason, they were a little slow to adapt. <laughs> and now- Yeah, it's, man- sorry, geez, it's management behavior. That's why they were slow to adapt. I was working in a hybrid way in 2001. I'll talk a little bit about what that means in a minute. In 2001, and my manager, he assumed trust. He didn't have to earn it. So he just trusted you to do the right thing. And, and, and when you assume the best, you get the best. Um, we recognized that technology could really help us. So we learned how to use it properly. And then mm-hmm. we used it. And other organizations who haven't been working that way, it's simply people's attitude either towards the staff. Do they trust them? Do they not? Their attitude towards technology. We can be bothered to learn it. We can't be bothered to learn it. And the desire to hold on to a way of working that they're familiar with rather than embracing something that could work for everybody in the future. So you've gone and written this book, The Hybrid Handbook, How to Set Yourself Up for the Future, right? So. What did you learn from those companies that were doing it well? I learned that they they really focused on six things and and they did those six things really, really well, Denise. They they didn't skimp on any of them. They didn't didn't do things passively. There was this real recognition that things had changed. So the first thing they did was culture. So they had a look at the way that they did things and they said, okay, well, so whilst our values may remain the same, the behaviors that we need to demonstrate towards each other and the principles of the way that we interact or collaboration, they need to change. So at the start of the pandemic, people's behaviors were more around compassion, Mm. empathy, discipline, because we're working at home and we have to have that internal discipline. So that was the first thing they recognized that they had to bring the team together to redefine, you know, and a lot of my work in the early days of the pandemic, I mean, it's still happening now, but but was with, you know, kind of virtual workshops with teams to help them redefine the way they do things. And at the start of the pandemic, it was mainly tech companies because they take this stuff really, really seriously. The second thing was they recognized that once we started to come out of lockdowns, and here in Australia, we kind of closed our borders. So we came out of lockdowns pretty quickly. Some states mm-hmm. were better than others, is they had to determine who's eligible for kind of hybrid work in this mix of at home and in the office and who's not. Yeah. Because you had, you had, you had organizations like Twitter and Facebook who said, we're going to be 100% hybrid. You can work from wherever you want, which is kind of, that's real short-term thinking. It's narrow-minded. They're doing it to keep people happy rather than thinking of the long-term implications because there are just some things that need to be done face-to-face. They're just yeah. better done face-to-face. The third thing they did was make sure that their managers had the skills to lead people in a kind of hybrid working environment because we're not very good at giving managers the emotional skills they need as it is. We're still too focused on technical skills. So that was the third thing is they looked at how they can upskill their managers. The fourth thing was helping people set up their workspace, whether they were in the office or whether they were at home, what are some things you need to do to get the best out of your days? The fifth thing was teaching people how to use the technology that they were going to use. So you didn't have to learn yourself. You know, most people just rolled out Microsoft Teams and expected people to know how to use it. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing was really paying conditions. And I think paying conditions is the big challenge moving forward. 
So if I'm not based in the city, do I still get paid the same amount? And different organizations yeah. have gone about it in different ways. Also, how do we make sure that all the initiatives that we have to make sure that we've got a diverse, inclusive workforce where there's pay equity, those things are easier to manage when everyone's in one place. And so the, the big organizations have started thinking about, well, well, how do we make sure we don't lose momentum in dealing with those issues? That's particularly true. I think when you talk about geographical differences, you know, the pay scale in New York is different than the one in, you know, Oklahoma City, right? And so how does that affect pay equity? And what is equitable when the cost of living in one place is so much higher than the cost of living in someplace else? And should we go by what impact should location actually have in setting what people get paid to do. And so I think that last one in particular is an interesting one, but I want to go back to something else, the whole idea of culture, because your other books, Culture Hack and Culture Fix, are books that really talked about how do you create this high-performing, inclusive kind of environment in general. And so, you know, we've had conversations with people living in, you know, France and then Australia and the U.S., and each one brings their own culture, not to mention the many cultures within a country itself. Now that we're in this hybrid situation, how do people kind of deal with this? What are some things that they can do that will begin to pull that together and managers can get equipped to, you know, inclusion is one of those things that is my responsibility to kind of feel but diversity is kind of a, you know, an idea of, you know, do people show up? Are they different? And so how does a manager, how does an employee, you know, what have you learned in terms of figuring out how to deal with this? Well, I think, you know, the, the onus is on managers really, Denise, to develop that skill set where they're able to bring people together from around the world and it feel like you're in the same place. It literally feel like you're in the same place. You know, I've worked with a lot of international teams over the last couple of years, and there has to be that acknowledgement that not only has the workplace culture evolved, but also social cultures are quite different. So the culture in France is quite different to the culture in Australia. I'll give you an example. I worked with a team who had a mix of people in Australia and the US, and I talked about the differences in the two cultures, you know. The social culture in the US, it's a very friendly place. We seek harmony. We want to understand the value of something before we do it. Australia is quite different. It's a very social culture. It's very informal. There's high levels of creativity. We struggle to stay focused on anything at any one time. But the way that it demonstrated itself is Australians are very kind of liberal with their language. So they swear a lot here in Australia and they give no thought to how that's perceived or how that's received. When the U.S. swearing is almost taboo in the in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what I was doing is trying to get people to see, hey, your social cultures are different. So you have to realize when I pick up the phone to Denise, there are certain things that I can say and that I can't say. And so it's about moderating elements of your social culture while still recognizing the different ways of doing things. So here in Australia, we think nothing about picking up the phone and phoning people. Whereas for other countries, they prefer an email or they prefer written conversations. Managers really aren't equipped with these skills, Denise. We don't teach people how to mix those kind of cultures, let alone be able to spot if Denise is working at home, how is she struggling? 
I need to get to know you so well that I can do empathy. It just comes naturally to me. Empathy, the ability to feel into another person. I can only do that if I know you really well. Most of our working relationships are superficial. Mm -hmm. We know people just enough to be able to tell them what we expect and hope that they do it. Yeah. Rather than me being able to interpret when you're anxious or you're stressed. And instead of saying, here's what I need you to do this week, me saying, hey, is everything okay? You just don't seem to be yourself. And I think, you know, once you feel cared for, you get that sense of safety. And once there's safety, that's the real pathway. You know, I call psychological safety the yellow brick road. Yeah. Because at the end of the yellow brick road is a vibrant culture. But there's lots, of, if you know the story of the Wizard of Oz, there's lots of things on the yellow brick road that, that kind of Dorothy has to overcome to get to that vibrant culture. And, and I think a big part of that is, is empathy and getting to know each other. I'm a manager. I, you know, I've heard this mm. word empathy. And now the new thing is compassion, which is empathy in action, right? It's right. I don't have to fit into your shoes, but I've got to recognize that something is going on with you. And so how do I support you in doing that? What are some things that you teach managers to at least get them on the yellow big road towards being compassionate managers? Well, I, I, I've been critical of HR in the past, and it seems to come far too naturally to me, um, <laughs> of, of not creating tailored management development programs. Often people get promoted based on the level of technical knowledge yeah. or the years of service, which neither of those two things are markers for leadership potential. So I think what HR need to do and, and what organizations need to do is to create tailored programs based on where they find themselves at right now. So I do a number of these tailored leadership programs. And you mentioned down to earth at the start of the podcast. That's literally my middle name. Because what managers want, and I was one myself for 15 years, is we just want practical stuff to do. So when right. you tell me to be more empathetic, what does that mean? Well, it means getting to know someone's personality, understanding their communication style, knowing when you need to change your style to meet that person where they're at. Compassion is another layer. Compassion is understanding what may be going on in their life that may be affecting their performance. Mm -hmm. Compassion is knowing when to cut someone a break rather than demand more hours, you demand less. Compassion is saying, I don't want you attend, to attend any meetings on Thursday and Friday to give you the headspace to get that work done that I know is stressing you out. Mm -hmm. But most organizations have an additive culture, Denise. And what I mean by that is they just want more and more and more and more from employees. At the start of the pandemic, you know, I was being interviewed at the press and they were saying, oh, can we trust people? Aren't they just winging it when they're working from home? My sense was the opposite was true. Yeah. That because we were at home, we were never off. Yeah. The laptop was always there. It was always open. And what we wanted from managers was to recognize that and demonstrate the compassion by saying, hey, Denise, listen, I noticed you sent me a message at 1130. I'm going to need you to take Friday off. And I want you to put your laptop and your phone in a drawer. I yeah. want you to go out for a walk with your mask on or whatever the rules. Right. Do you know what I mean? And right. that's compassion in action. Whereas most managers feel under pressure just to keep, you know, kind of squeezing the lemon dry, even if there's nothing left in it. Yeah. One of the things I started working with executive teams on was really looking at the project management board, right? What are mm -hmm. the goals? What are the objectives? And asking the question, how much time does it actually take to get this done? Knowing that we're always going to underestimate the amount of time it takes. And what do we do when we find that we have actually either people have quit or they got sick and had to take time off 
their family members, or and not maybe not even the employee, but someone in their house got sick and they had to attend to them. They just couldn't do what they said they were going to do. And then how are you going to adjust those timetables real time or at least at regular intervals so that you knew what you could expect at the end of the year or the midterm of the year, but also you could forecast to employees and demonstrate a level of you know, verbal compassion, right? Hey, we know you're tired. We understand that we can't because we either didn't have the technology in place or whatever. We can't get these projects done. So we're going to slow down the implementation of them or we're going to eliminate things off the project board so that we can maintain regular kinds of things. And so what it did was it focused people's attention on what was important. And at the start of the pandemic and even now, Denise, whenever I've been meeting people to talk about their projects, I'm staggered that they're still doing the same number of projects that they were doing when everybody was able to work normally and they're still doing the same number now. But, you know, what I'll hear from people is, that oh, we can be just as productive out of the office as we can in the office. And I 100% agree when we're not locked down. When our kids are on at home, if you're, if you're, I've got two teenagers, Denise, and <laughs> massive. Well, I felt like we started the pandemic and they were really small and aren't they cute? Now they're absolutely huge. I'm like, this is what happens when you stay at home. But there's no way that I could do the same level of work and manage the mental health of my children. My daughter, especially, really affected. She needed a hug every half hour. In between lessons, she wanted to come down for a hug. What am I going to do? Turn her away? Go, no, darling, that is working. No mm-hmm. hugs today. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, projects are something that, that happen at a point in time. And because the world had changed, it was very easy to draw a line and go, all right, well, we're going to do those 50% projects and we're not going to do these 50%. Right. All of a sudden, you lighten the load on people and you give managers the opportunity to be more compassionate on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think so. The other thing that I think is popping up, and it was in another group that I I manage for leadership global called the diversity, equity, and inclusion is this idea of neurodiversity or cognitive diversity. The story came up of, here was this guy, he, no one knew until she, the manager was talking to him that he had, as a child, he'd been impaled in his eye. And so he didn't have depth perception. So now he's at home and he's trying to manage the screen when he has no depth perception and figuring out what this looks like and how that's changed his life. And, and because it's one of those things that you don't see, somehow we have to have a conversation around the limitations that people have without us kind of going, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And it's really about asking employees what they need out of it. Have you seen any best practices or what do you tell managers with this idea of dealing with cognitive diversity that might be coming up or neural diversity? There's so many gains from cognitive diversity. What we want is different people from different backgrounds with different opinions, Denise. That's where we get the greatest gains. You know, we having a good gender mix because what we then get is a sense of what everybody thinks. And I think, again, what, what happened during the pandemic is any issues we had with any kind of cognitive diversity, be it gender, any kind of diversity, cognitive or gender, is those things were amplified because we weren't all able to be together in the same space. And there had to be a lot of courage shown by people who had issues 
And what they needed then was compassion from managers. They wanted understanding from managers and that recognition that everybody works in a slightly different way. The tech companies are great at, at, at doing that because, because the pool of talent is small for those guys. They're constantly trying to nick each other's staff, Denise. And so they have they have managers who understand that different people work in different ways. They have different pressures. They have different afflictions, different things. And it's not about quotas. They're not right. looking to tick a box and go, we've got one of those and we've got one of those. And it sounds quite blunt, but for some organizations, that's literally what it is. Yeah. And instead, what you want is for organizations and managers to be like, hey, it doesn't matter the makeup of an individual. It's our job to create an environment where they can bring the best of themselves to work. And consequently, we all succeed as a result. And, you know, the organizations that do that will always win. Yeah. And it's interesting because we've been saying this, you know, people in this field, leadership, development, culture, management, those kinds of things. We've been saying these very same things, even before this lockdown or this new way of work. Out yeah. of this. And, and so that's the interesting piece of it. And for the most part, people have waited until they didn't have to do it. Do you have any, you know, obviously HR, the kinds of training around leadership and then bringing them back in, kind of bringing folks in. But, you know, we're not allowed for lots of reasons, particularly if you're cross country going, you know, you can't send people into countries to have these big, massive meetings, those kinds of things. What do you do now that it's hybrid? How do, has chain, training changed? And should we be thinking about it differently? I think we should, Denise. There's still the sense that doing things virtually is hard to do, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be. I think organizations really need to focus on getting the best out of technology and creating an environment where people not only understand how to use it, but also how to communicate and collaborate effectively. You know, one of the things that I've been recommending to organizations is have a look at the tools that you use. Have you agreed how you'll use them? So we've got this mix of synchronous and asynchronous tools. Synchronous is kind of real-time. Asynchronous is kind of read it whenever you want. So email is a great example of an asynchronous tool. You can send me an email. It's up to me when I read it. Whereas a tool like Slack is more synchronous. Right. You send me a message on Slack. The expectation is I respond immediately. So many organizations lack discipline around the way they use those tools. So you've got organizations that use uh, Google suites like Drive and, and you've got people who use Zoom and then Microsoft Teams and email and text message and WhatsApp groups. And there's no agreement on how these things will be used to enhance collaboration. Consequently, people feel overwhelmed by communication, which erodes collaboration. So I think that's something that all organizations and all teams can do. You know, and often the people that I work with, I, you know, I like to call them corporate mavericks. They want to be. They want to do things differently because the way that the organization works is quite dysfunctional. And I worked with one team, and they were using four, four or five tools. And the manager said, "Right, we're going to make an agreement on which tools we use for what." And they drew up an agreement. Simple: email is for, Slack is for, Zoom is for. Because we went from back to back in person meetings, which is a nonsense, Denise, to back to back virtual meetings. We didn't yeah. pause and go. Is that stupid back-to-back mm-hmm. meetings? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, let's stop doing it, they just replicated it. So there are so many cultural things that organizations do that people listen to this podcast can do differently. You do have the permission. 
You do have the permission to do 20 minute meetings and 40 minute meetings. You do have the permission to do meetings with cameras off. You do have the, the permission to do weekly gatherings with your team to talk about anything but work. You do have permission to play games virtually. You do have the permission to turn your email off after six o'clock every night and don't answer emails at the weekend to retain that sense of balance within your own life. You do have the permission, but obviously organizations don't tell people that because they want them to carry on working the way that they've always worked, which generally isn't progressive or future focused at all that or they just don't think about it because i think it's, yeah, more, yeah, it's much more too, of yeah. a yeah i think it's you know we're creatures of habit so we just fall into you know we just have to do this kind of thing and i, I heard a great quote from a manager she said you know this whole thing is like when i was in school i was working and i was in school and i was a mother parent that kind of thing and then suddenly i graduated and i can't tell you how much time i got back because i graduated i didn't know what to do with it but at some point, I got permission to say, you know, you could sleep. You could. <laughs> I know, right? You could play. She, I could play with my daughter. I could do some other things. She said, but it took her a minute to like snap out of the automatic thinking that causes us to just keep going and going. And what you're saying is wake up, snap, snap, snap. Right. <laughs> you, know, folks, you can do it you have you can, well you have all yeah. the permission there is to say yeah. we need to stop and say how are we going to do this best how are That's we going right. to move forward in a way that we all can work more collaboratively and we get we know what we're going to get done because I think the biggest hangover every manager I, I like to call it the expectation hangover it's when you thought you were going to get something and then you get there and it's like, oh, this isn't what I thought I was going to get. <laughs> <laughs> and now you got to go through this is different, better, worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you could do that on the front end. That's right. And it's not about working harder either. It's just no. about working smarter. Yeah. And there are so many gains to swim in against the, the cultural tide, because that tide can be like a tsunami. It can be overwhelming. It can be all encompassing when the expectation is for you to send emails late at night. I'll give you one example, Denise. When I was a manager, one of the things that I used to do when I used to go on vacation was I set my out of office and then I set up a rule within Microsoft Outlook to send every email to trash. In my out of office, it said, thanks so much for your email. I'm out of the office until, I don't know, Monday, the 1st of February. In that time, your email will go to the trash. Not because it's not important to me, but because I don't want to be overwhelmed by email when I come back. I shared this with the manager uh, with a group before Christmas. She was just like, firstly, I can't believe he did that. Yeah. Secondly, that's a game changer. And it was yeah. because my first week back in work, I wasn't swamped by a thousand emails. I could just go around and catch up with everyone and go, hey, how's it going? What's going on? What's been happening? What do I need to know? And I've not been bothered in my inbox with all the minutiae that people want to share with you. And instead, I get to hear about the big ticket things that I need to focus and concentrate on. And they're the things where you're swimming against the tsunami of corporate busyness to enhance the quality of your life. Yeah, I think that permission to say, look, I'm not going to look at it because I really am on vacation. I'm really out sick. I'm really, whatever that end is, is important for us to feel like we're in control. The other thing, you know, I know a lot of people are just busy because the supply chain is just broken. And so they're trying to double down on certain things, which I think the importance in that is 
how do we manage stopping long enough to say, look, this is a problem. How are we going to fix that and still allow people to be at their peak? Some people are better at, you know, five o'clock in the morning. Others are better at five o'clock in the evening. And so we have to be able to know enough about ourselves and when we do best work to be and have the freedom and flexibility to be able to tap into that, to be creative and to do those other things. That's one of the things I think is, you know, when we talk about game changers, that sounds like one to me. Yeah, definitely. So better communication, better planning is something I actively encourage. So communication. So there was one group that I worked with. They had a new mother there and she was like, I'm going to get up at 4.30 in the morning because she really wanted, she wanted that thing for herself. There was the new baby, but she really wanted that thing for herself. They were encouraging her not to come back, but she wanted to come back. And she was like, I'm getting up at 4.30 in the morning. I want to do some work. Then I want to feed the child. Then I want to do my exercise. Then I'm going to have a nap. And she'd plan the day. And so every t- I got every team member to plan their ideal day. And then it's about communication and understanding where were those touch points where they can plan in effective collaboration. What are those dumb things, as we call them? What are the dumb things that we're going to stop doing? So that's these constant back-to-back meetings, sending emails about everything, that agreement on how we'll use technology, such that you end up with a day that's structured around the best available times for you to work. And you come to an agreement as a team is, when are we going to get together? You're right, Denise, total game changer. Because all of a sudden they feel in control, not only of their own emotion, which is crucially important for our attitude and for our mindset, but also in control of the amount of productive time that they had available for work and consequently the outputs that could be expected by the end of the week. Yeah. So you know what? It's been so much fun and time's up. What? All right, guys, you know the drill. If you like to share it, if you don't share it, because I guarantee it will be a conversation that will be a game changer and that you'll be able to get some things that some conversations started that are going to make your life better in this world that is now struggling to find its footing in a hybrid lifestyle. Oh, before I go, remember, if you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe. And in the show notes, you'll be able to get a hold of Colin. Any other ways that you want us to get a hold of you? They can just find me on LinkedIn or on Amazon, Denise. I'm all over. Just search for Colin DeAnnes. I'm literally all over the place. (laughs) That's true. That's what I love about you. His, His latest book is called The Hybrid Handbook, How to Set Yourself Up for the Future of Work. So, folks, with that, you know what I'm going to say. See you next week. Bye. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend Ivan G. Hall for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.